Our scripture passage this morning will be from Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This morning, I want to talk to you about overcoming sin. I want to talk to you about overcoming sin. What we just read about was what uh, scholars, theologians call original sin, the original sin of humanity that brought on um, all of the problems of the world. Uh, Everybody agrees in our world that human failure is real. The issue is why, what is the cause of human failure? In our day, in the modern times and postmodern times, uh, there's a lot of different reasons for human failure. One is economic. Uh, Human failure is the result of economic uh, stresses and discrepancies. Um, And so because of uh, the economic world and, and economy issues, people fail. Uh, because of greed or envy or because of need or whatever. Uh, There's another explanation for human failure. It's called uh, competition. Some people say that because society is so geared towards competition and all of the education and the way education is done is competitive, that creates this competitive spirit and anxiety that creates uh, a context and an environment for human failure. So there's that. There's more religious reasons for human failure that might not be totally biblical, but are out there. For example, human failure is the result of anxiety over being finite, that we have a deep desire to be infinite, but we realize we're finite, and so we're seeking an infinite quality to life, which creates anxiety and control issues and all kinds of emotional, psychological problems. And so uh, the world says, maybe that's it. And that's a more religious reason, by the way. People, that's religion coming to you and saying, you know, you really have a lot of potential. You've got a lot of quality. If you would just surrender to God, the infinite, then your anxiety would go away. And then every day could be a Friday. Right? All right. Anyways. Uh, so there's that. Um, but when we come to Genesis 3, we have a whole new reason for human failure. And the reason for human failure is not economic. 
It's not anxiety. It's not competition. It's not education. The reason for human failure is separation from God. That's the reason for human failure. And that's why we call it sin. We don't call it imperfection. Sin is a biblical word. It's, it's a word that's used uh, a, a lot of times in the Old Testament, a lot of times in the New Testament, and it literally means missing the mark. You've missed the mark. That's what sin means. Um, but not only have you missed the mark like, like as a mistake, not only have you like pulled back the arrow, shot at the target, and missed the middle uh, area. But you've missed the mark because you chose, and I chose, and we all chose a different target altogether. God set up a target. He said, I want you to shoot here, and here is my standard. And we said, not only am I going to miss your target, I'm going to create my own target. I'm going to create my own standard. I'm going to create my own bullseye, and I'm going to shoot at that. Now, here's the irony with human failure and sin. Not only do we create our own standard, but we can't even hit the center of our own standards. Can I get an amen? Isn't that right? I come up with my own standards, my own way of life, and I judge everybody by that standard, by the way. I judge you and everybody else, and I say, hey, here's the standard. This is what's right and wrong because I've determined it, and I break my own rules. I went to the gun range the other day this week. First time I've shot a gun since I was a little boy. And you know I thought it was going to be so good. Because I'm so masculine. You know what I'm saying? I took that gun and I was like, bam. You know what I mean? I was looking good. I, was, I felt like Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon. You know when he made that smiley face? That's a really old illustration. Okay. And I looked at it, and I felt good, and I felt like I looked good holding that gun. And I was sitting there, and I was feeling masculine, and I went, bam, bam. You know what I mean? I missed the whole thing. I think I missed the range itself. I was horrible. Now, I was with a friend, and he kept telling me, now, shoot at the five, right? Shoot, because it was like one, two, three, four, five. You know, and the five was kind of in the Shoot at the five, Right? I was missing the five, I was missing the one, I was missing the two, I was hitting side walls. But I had a sincere, I, you know, like, I honestly wanted to hit the five. The problem with sin, the Bible says, is we don't even want to shoot at God's target. We want our own. Missing the mark. Now, that wouldn't be bad. Our world says so. I mean, I grew up in a culture, and I believed, like, my whole attitude was like, so I miss God's target. Who cares? It doesn't matter. I'll find my own self-fulfillment. I'll be happier this way. The only problem is, is that the Bible says not only are you deliberately missing God's mark, but that creates death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says the wages of sin, the wages of p- picking our own standard and missing it, The wages of sin is death, and what we learn from Genesis 3 is that there's all kinds of different types of death that we go through because of sin, not just physical. In fact, when we come to Genesis 3, look at it with me. Dave read it beautifully. But in verse 8, when God comes to confront Adam and Eve, after they have sinned, and they're hiding themselves... It says here, and the Bible says, that the death that we experience because of sin and because of separation from God, it's not just physical, it's psychological too. 
What does Adam say? He, God comes to him and says, Adam, where are you? Where are you? Although God had a much deeper, more Charlton Heston-like voice. More like, where are you? Right? And Adam says what we all say. This is our death. It was the psychological. He says, I was afraid. <laughs> there was no fear in Eden before this. There was no fear in chapter 2. And he says, I was afraid. That's humanity. We're all afraid. We're all hiding. Psychological death. Then there's social death because not only is he afraid, but he's separated from his wife. They cover themselves, not just to hide themselves from God, but to hide themselves from each other. This marriage that was fully transparent, that was perfect in social relationship, is now broken behind shame and social relational death. The wages of sin is always death, and it's not like it's changed today. The reason why there's relational death in our society, the reason why there's uh, relational death in the world is because of the fact we've been separated from God. The source of life and love, psychological, social, environmental death, as opposed to cultivating and and being a good steward and having dominion over uh, creation, they use creation to cover up their shame. They take creation and say, I'm going to use whatever I can from nature to cover up my sin. And that's certainly what we do, right? That's what man, man's been using and abusing the environment to cover up their own shame, their own sin, environmental death. Social, spiritual death, obviously. God is no longer close or, or fellowship is broken. Beloved, friends, friends, fellow human beings, I want to overcome sin, don't you? I'm sick of being scared. I'm sick of being separated in my relationships. I'm sick of not being able to love like I should. I'm sick of hiding. Aren't you sick of hiding? I'm sick of it. It's exhausting to hide. It's exhausting to cover up with our addictions, cover up with our money, cover up with our agenda, to cover up with our position. I'm tired. We get tired when we're always covering up our sin. The wages of sin is death, and I'm sick of dying. I want to live. And God wants me to live and you to live. I want to overcome sin. And I want to overcome and I want to step back into delighting in God and experience Him as a good thing and not a bad thing. As a close relationship, not a cold religion. I want to walk in the shadow and in the garden with my God again. I want to overcome sin. That's why we're together. That's why we have church. We don't come to church because we're perfect. We don't come to church because we're religious. We don't come to church because we got it all together. We come to church because we're scared and we're trying to come out of our hiding places. And we're saying, God, I'm so scared, but please help me. That's why Genesis 3 is here. Because the Bible says Genesis 3 happens over and over and over and over and over again every day in our life. And there's temptation and there's redemption. 
And the question is, will I overcome temptation? Will I overcome sin and experience God's redemption? So you ask me, well, how are we going to overcome sin? I'm with you, man. I want to overcome all these deaths, psychological, social, spiritual, environmental. I want to I overcome sin and this death. How do I do it? Number one, of course, I've got three things for you. You knew that was coming. <laughs> Number one, overcome temptation. This is what happens in principle to us every day is this original sin, temptation. Genesis 3, verse 1, overcoming temptation means identifying that you have a spiritual enemy. He's crafty. He's shrewd. He's in the garden of your life. He's in your home. He's in your neighborhood. He's in your work. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Now, I really love the fact. In fact, I'm really surprised by this text. And Genesis keeps surprising me. And I always kind of scratch my head. Don't you read Genesis? And you're like, so interesting. But why is it like that? It says the serpent. We expect the text to say Satan. Everybody say Satan. But don't say he is good. Just, (laughs) right? You expect the text to say Satan came to Eve. And Satan said Hello, here I am. I am Satan, Lucifer, the devil. Right? That's what you expect him to say. But it doesn't say that. It says the serpent came to him. Now, when you and I read the serpent, when we grew up, we were scared of serpents and snakes, and we went to church enough to know that whenever you read serpent, that's a bad thing. Because Revelation refers to Satan as the ancient serpent. But you see, we have to go back in time, and we got to think like Eve's thinking. And here's what Eve's thinking. Eve's thinking everything in the garden is good, and at this point in time, the serpent is a beautiful creature. The serpent's not threatening. The serpent's not something you're scared of at night. The serpent's this beautiful, crafty, shrewd. It seems to indicate even that the serpent might have been one of the best animals created. The issue is that the serpent is not Satan. The serpent is a beautiful thing that Satan possesses because Satan is always behind the scenes. Y'all know that, right? He never comes with the pitchfork and the, and the little horns and all that stuff. He always comes behind something. And he always comes to you through something that is beautiful, that is wonderful, that is admirable, that might even be defendable. That serpent's not so bad. Remember Jesus said to Peter, when Peter, remember Peter was like, I'm not going to let you go to the cross, Jesus. I'm not going to let you go die. You and me, I'm going to be with you. We're not going to go die. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, was Peter Satan? No. He was just under the influence of Satan. And the serpent, see, you have to look. We get tempted To overcome sin, you got to overcome temptation, and you've got to overcome the disguise. you got to judge things not by their appearance, but by their substance. Not by their appearance, but by their ideas. Now listen, you and I, we are driven by an image-driven culture. That's why we preachers, I don't know why it's on that slide. That's why we preachers have to uh, use images and things like we're so image-driven in our society. We're more image-driven than we are word-driven. But listen to me. 
Ideas matter. The truth sets you free. Lies is what puts you in bondage. And that has nothing to do with appearances, but ideas and truth. Satan comes and he begins to tempt. Why is it doing that? Hmm. There we go. All right. Overcoming temptation. Where was I at? Serpent. And he comes to him, verse 1. Go back to verse 1. He says, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the, go- of the garden? Satan's ultimate goal, this serpent, all the disguise, all of the temptation, ultimately has one principle underneath it all. It doesn't matter what action you're tempted to. I mean, some of us are tempted to arrogance. Some of us are tempted to anger. Some of us are tempted to drunkenness. Some of us are tempted to addictions of various kinds. I mean, I'm not going to give you a vice list. There's an, there's an underlying principle behind every temptation, and the ultimate goal of the serpent is to create any kind of distance between you and God that he possibly can. That's all he wants, and he'll take you He'll take you away from God any way he possibly can. He'll take you away from God through religion. He'll take you away from God through irreligion. He'll take you away from God through secular ways, through spiritual ways, through pride, uh, through uh, excessive humility. He'll take you any way he can get you separated from God. And you see it from the details. When he talks to the woman about God, how does he talk to her about God? In what fashion? He says, did God say? Now watch. He calls God Elohim. He doesn't use the personal relationship covenant name for God. And I labored to tell you uh, in in Genesis 1 that it says 35 times God is called Elohim, just God, general God, creator God, kind of standing above everything, and just with this word, he just creates stuff. But then in Genesis chapter 2, with the creation of man and woman, God is referred to differently as Yahweh Elohim, as the covenant relationship God. See, whenever it says Lord God in your Bible, that is the name for God that's used when he comes into relationship with Israel, with people, with human beings, with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, with Joseph, with Moses, Lord God, Yahweh Lord, in fact, in most of your English translation, if it's any good at all, it spells Lord with capital L-O-R-D to emphasize Yahweh. And whenever you see that name, Lord, that's like God drawn close. That's God breathing the breath of life, close, intimate, from his mouth. Mouth to mouth resuscitation for that, that jar of clay that Adam was. Uh, uh, close, hands-on work on Eve when he shapes her from the ribs. See, the Lord God draws close. The Lord God is intimate. The Lord God is in fellowship. The Lord God speaks and breathes, and he's really close to us. See, that's the Lord. But God, the general name for God, that sounds far away. The serpent comes to Eve and says, did God say? Not Lord God. And when Eve responds to the serpent, she uses that general name for God because it's working in her life. 
You see, all it takes for you and I to give in to sin and to be defeated by temptation is for us to sense that God is not close, that God is distant, that God is irrelevant to the real business of life. Satan's goal in our life is not theological atheism. Satan's goal in our life is practical atheism. Satan's goal in our life is not science against God. Satan's goal is bias against God. God doesn't really matter in this area of my life. God isn't central to my existence. God is over there. He's in the corner. He's in the church. He's in the religion. He's in the dogma. He's not relational. As soon as the serpent gets her to detach her delight and desire and sense of love and fellowship with God, she begins to think about her delight and desire being fulfilled by other things to replace God. To overcome temptation, what you've got to do and what you've got to remember is that this God is a God of love. That this God is a God of relationship and fellowship. And what I want you to see, now look again. He said to the woman, did God actually say, which is sarcasm, irony, cynicism. How many people have lost God on a joke? How many people lose God because it's just kind of a joke, God? She's losing God on a joke, on a smirk. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. He's quoting or, or an attempting to a quote the command and the word of God. Now we can go to that slide in Genesis 2. Why is it doing that? You know what? You guys take it over up there. Can you take it over? You got it? Go to the Genesis 2.16. I don't know why it's doing that. All right. Genesis 2 and 16. Here's the command of God. It says in the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, when you jump down from that verse to Genesis 3, and you look at the way Satan quotes, or the serpent quotes Scripture, he's doing addition and subtraction. He says, He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's addition with any. That's certainly subtraction by the fact that he's taking out of the fact that God had given this liberal uh, freedom to eat of any fruit of the garden. Eve likewise participates in this addition-subtraction scenario with Scripture in verse 2. When the woman said to the woman, we may eat of the fruit of the tree uh, uh, in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Well, now that's not what God said either, is it? She adds the, you shall not touch it. She's making it more strict. God just says, don't eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. She's taking away the liberal command where he says you can eat of every tree of the garden except for the one in the middle. And she's adding a rule to Scripture. You see, Satan creates distance between us and the personal God one of two ways. One way is through religion. 
Eve's solution to overcoming the serpent and the temptation is a religious solution. She adds rules to the rule of God. That's what religion does. Legalism always adds to the rules. It comes and says, well, not only can you not eat of the forbidden fruit, but you can't talk about it, you can't look at it, you can't see it. You can't be 10 miles within the rule. In fact, you've got to box yourself off from this world, from this wicked, bad, godless world, this unholy world, and you've got to box yourself into your religion, create some rules to protect yourself from, from, from religion, from, from temptation, I mean. Of course, what this does is it creates a cold relationship with God. You can't have a relationship with God through bureaucracy, through made-up additional rules. You can't do that. Isn't that what religion does? You want to escape sin? You want to overcome temptation? You better add some rules to your life. Add some borders. That creates distance from God. You can't have a relationship with God like that. But Satan's more than happy if you're like, if you grew up and you're like, I hate religion. I hate the church. It's boring. I hate, I hate preachers. Hey, I grew up with that. I, I didn't like it when I was little. I didn't like it when I was a teenager. And I don't like it as an adult. In fact, religion's not even a temptation to me. Well, then the serpent's more than happy to take you down the irreligious route. And the irreligious world takes and subtracts what God has revealed. The irreligious world says, Sarcastically, did God actually say? Are you serious? Really? Really? That's what you were taught? Really? Wow, that's amazing. Come with me. How many people lose God in college after they leave their religious family and their background? How many people go to university and it's one big sarcastic joke, it's one big smirk, everything is a joke, everything's funny, and then they look and they say, there's no rules, baby. You and me, we're going to go find ourselves. You and me, come on, come on, let's go party. Come on, come on, come on over here. I know your mama doesn't like it. I know we won't tell your daddy. There's certainly no relationship with God there. That creates distance because there's no, there's no boundary. There's no nothing. Just come on. As soon as you're separated from the idea that God is a relational God, that God's the God that breathes the breath of life into us, that God is the potter, we are the clay, that we are the clay, the jars of clay, and Jesus is the treasure on the inside. As soon as we lose that special relationship, we're going to go one of two ways, either religion or irreligion. And what happens is our desires and our pleasures are replaced for God, are replaced by other things. And we, we, listen, we exchange God for a lie. Verse 6, go to Genesis 3 and verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. She said, this looks good. This is good food. And it's, the, it's a delight to my eyes. I'm looking at it. It's looking good. And I desire it because it's, it's going to make me wise. 
And in a way, she got exactly what she wanted. She got everything she wanted. She wanted her eyes to be open. Oh, they got opened, all right. This is what happens when we give in to temptation. We see the the end result of sin is always death. And we see, and we see something we never thought we would see when we would follow him down that path. We see shame and brokenness. Oh, and she got wise. Oh, she got the knowledge she needed. Knowledge to create little fig leaves to cover herself up. She got exactly what she wanted. But it cost her far more than she ever thought. It certainly cost her a lot more than what he said it would. You see, religion takes us down that road because we get to, when we get to the end of legalistic religion, judgmental, hateful religion, you know what ends up happening? Disillusionment. Because we work so hard at being godly and adding the rules, and I'm going to be godly, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to... And you know what? We get to the end of that and we realize we ain't Jack. That's what you realize. One day you realize I am just as godless and jacked up as anybody else. I need Jesus probably more than most. But if you go the route of irreligion, you choose a secular world without God. You get to the end of that and you realize I am as jacked up as anybody. My life is so messed up. I got all these little fig leaves that I've tried to sew together to hide up my shame. I'm hiding behind my, my little bush, my little itty-bitty bush, my little itty-bitty made-up fig leaves with all the three-and-a-half pounds of my brain that I could use to hide behind. The way to overcome temptation is through relationship with God, not through religion. Go in your Bibles. Don't, don't worry about following me with the slides. We'll just, we're going to do it the old-fashioned way. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. God, glory be to God. God forbid we actually have to open a Bible. All right, Matthew chapter 4. And Jesus is being tempted by the same, the same and Jesus is the second Adam. And before Jesus could save us, he had to go through the same temptation as the first Adam, but to overcome the temptation. And there's even the idea that Jesus is in the garden, but this garden has been deserted. And it's interesting because the tempter comes to him and is real charming and talks up a big game. You are, you know, Satan always says, you're such a big deal, man. Jesus, you are phenomenal. I love you, dude. I can't believe, I can't believe I'm getting to meet you. Seriously. You are awesome. Satan does the same thing to us, you know. You deserve this. Oh, man. You are so awesome. Man, Satan will say that to you through people. Satan will say that through things. Satan will say that through stuff. You're so, oh, you deserve this. I'm ashamed to say, as a car salesman, I used to say that all the time. You know, Bob, Bob. You know, we just drove that convertible. You deserve this, man. You've been working hard. You know what I'm saying? Let's go in there and let's close this deal. All right? Let's, let's shut this baby down. Let's send you home. Your neighbor's going to look at that thing, and they're going to know you deserve this and that you look good in it. You know, and Bob's like, uh-huh, you know. Come on, Bob. 
That's what Satan does to Jesus. He comes in there and he goes, man, you are the son of God. Woo! Look at you. Hey, why is it if you're the son of God, you're out here in this desert with these stones, man, and you're hungry? You've been fasting for 40 days, by the way. Bravo on fasting. You are very spiritual because you're the son of God. You're so awesome. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm just asking myself, since you're so awesome, why are you sitting here with stones and you're so hungry? Dude, this is about you. Why don't you use your power? I want to encourage you, Jesus. You're so gifted. I want to encourage you to turn these stones into bread. And here's Jesus' response. And this is the key to overcoming temptation, I think. Matthew 4, verse 4. But he answered, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Everybody say mouth. I love that. We've learned. Have we not learned more than we ever thought we would learn about the mouth of God from Genesis? Haven't we? It was that mouth that gave Adam life. It was that mouth that came up. I mean, we were uncomfortable reading it last week when, when, when it looks like God is open mouth kissing Adam to give him the breath of life. That God would kiss a man. That God would come and with his mouth and with his hands intimately shape Eve. The key to overcoming temptation is the word of God. However... You cannot look at this word as a religious document, but as the breath of God coming into your heart from a heart, his heart of love. When I was growing up, what they used to say about the Bible and the word, they used to say, they used to preach that the word was like an owner's manual for life. Kind of like when you go buy a car and you got the owner's manual in the glove compartment. So the Bible is, if you want to know how life works, read the Bible. Just like if you want to know how your car works, read the owner's manual. Of course, my question always was as a kid when I heard these sermons was, who reads their owner's manual? Is anybody, by the way, there were people in the first service willing to admit that they read their car's owner's manual, all right? So I'm going to ask this re- rhetorically, all right? Don't embarrass yourself. Who reads their car manual in the glove compartment? Dead gummit. Ken, I got a plaque for you. Right here, man. If you do read it, it's because you're a type A personality and you like the details and you like to see the rules of how things work. But nobody goes, oh boy, the Bible's the owner's manual for life. I can't wait to read it. It's almost like a necessity. But when it's realized that it's not an owner's manual, man, it it is a loving letter written from our Heavenly Father who loves us and cares for us. And you know what? It's such a lie that God is some kind of judgmental Bible bureaucrat up in the sky ready to strike everybody down dead. He wants to save us. 
He wants to give us life. He wants us to hear his voice. He wants us to hear him say, Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. And I find it very interesting that Jesus said to the Pharisees, you know, you guys are so moral, but you're of the father, you're the devil. That's who your father is, Satan. But my sheep, they know my voice. And when they hear it, they know it's a good voice. And I love that Jesus says to Satan, you know, the thing that gives me life is the mouth of God, the breath of God, the spirit of God. That's what gives me life. You want to overcome temptation. There is this idea that you need to hear from God in relationship, not in religion, but certainly not to neglect a relationship with God through irreligion, but in relationship. The mouth of God, the breath of God. I'm going to finish there today. We'll pick it up next week. Let's just prepare our hearts for communion this morning. And let me just pray for us. God, thank you so much for your word and and the fact that it's so much more... um, than an owner's manual, that, that your word is a, a fresh and spoken word to us, a truth that sets us free, doesn't place us in bondage. And there's not one of us who's not given in to temptation. There's not one of us who hasn't fallen. There's not one of us who hasn't shamed himself or herself. There's not one of us who's not, uh, at one point in time, even maybe possibly now, there's not one of us who hasn't hid behind some tree in our life, some functional savior in our life, some something that promised to quench and to fill our starved souls. And we're hiding behind it because we realize in, in buying into the lie, it didn't do what it promised. It gave us more than we wanted, and it didn't give us as much as we needed. God, bring us back. Bring us back into your home, into, your, into fellowship, into communion. Forgive us. Fill us. Give us your life.